and welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. I'm Greg Smith, I'm your host, and as always, you can hear the songs from my episodes on the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. The song on today's show is Disconnected by Face to Face, specifically the version from their 1995 album Big Choice, and hopefully you're not feeling too disconnected as we continue to make our way through the global situation with COVID-19. Thank you again for taking the time to listen in these strange and trying times, and with any luck, Podcasts like this one will help us pass the time through the quarantine period of our lives, and we can continue to come out of it with a sharper understanding of fantasy football. And to help us on that quest, I'm bringing in one of the sharpest minds in the fantasy community, John Paulson. He requires no introduction because he's been hosting episodes on this feed far longer than I have, but humor me as I tell you that you can follow him on Twitter at 444 underscore John, and you can find all of his work at 444.com. Welcome to the other side of the TMAP feed, John. How are you holding up uh, through the pandemic? It's uh, good to be here. I feel fairly healthy. Uh, I did have a cold uh, in the last couple of weeks, some chills, but no fever. Uh, I don't know that I don't know that I didn't have it. I don't know. Uh, but my wife and son are healthy, so I think maybe that I didn't. Maybe I just had the regular type of cold. But uh, we're staying indoors. We're social distancing. We're doing our part to try to flatten the curve and. In the meantime, we've been—I've uh, been following the free agency uh, pretty closely, and I'm excited about talk, to talk about that today. Yeah, on today's show, John and I are going to discuss the winners and losers of free agency to coincide with the article that he just published about those players. So check out the link in the show notes, or just head over to 444.com to find that piece front and center. And John, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Starting with free agency's winners at the running back position. Let's go. Let's talk about Kenyon Drake. His average draft position in best ball tens has already started to creep up over the past few days after he was traded to, or after David Johnson was traded to Houston, excuse me. He was early in the third round, and now he's creeping up into the late second round. But he's still behind Nick Chubb, Austin Eckler, Josh Jacobs, Leonard Fournette, and ADP. Does that make sense to you? Because I kind of think Drake should be leapfrogging a few of those players based upon the pure volume that he might have in Cliff Kingsbury's fast-paced offense. Um, what's your take on Kenyon Drake and his new role as the de facto number one RB in Arizona? Well, I have a role with Kenyon Drake. Whenever I tweet about him, I have to include the gif of uh, Jerry Maguire holding the fish in a bag saying, who's coming with me, who's coming, coming with, with me? Because uh, at <laughs> the start of last year, I felt like I was trying to talk everybody into Kenyon Drake, and it actually worked out who's coming quite with well, me? But, but it wasn't because he, you know, he was going to tear it up in Miami. It turned out he needed the change of scenery. Who's coming with me but, besides um, Flipper? I, I just Here. feel like Jerry Maguire uh, with him, and I, I don't feel like it anymore because now his, uh, his ADP is in the second round. This is embarrassing. I was just looking at it, getting ready for the show. And I, you know, I have him uh, higher than Leonard Fournette, I believe, and Josh Jacobs. So I have him right there below Austin Eckler. I think that's a good debate there between those two, Alvin Kamara, you know, Aaron Jones above them. So given his production, 814 total yards and eight touchdowns in his final eight games, uh, he was the number four fantasy running back in that span. And this is not like it's the first time we've seen him produce at a really, really high level. We saw it before in Miami over a short stretch of games. I think now that he's found a home in this offense with a team that uh, likes him and knows how to use him, I think he's uh, going to have a good season. I think he should be going in the middle of the second round now. And just as a quick aside, do you have any thoughts on Chase Edmonds? Do you think he can maintain a fantasy-relevant role as Drake's backup in Arizona? Uh, I don't know if it would be fantasy relevant because it just didn't seem like, uh, you know, once Drake arrived, it didn't seem like anybody else was going to get any touches. Now, Drake is not the most durable guy, you know, over the years. Uh, so Edmonds could have some of that uh, attrition backup value. We know he's pretty good. So I, I would put him more in that uh, kind of a realm of, uh, you know, an RB4, RB5 that probably isn't going to have much week to week value, but could, uh, you know, erupt if Drake has to miss a few games. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's move on to the running back that was shipped out of Arizona, David Johnson, who was traded to the Houston Texans. And DJ still has some durability concerns of his own, and he only averaged 3.65 yards per carry over the past two seasons with the Cardinals. And maybe we can blame their poor, their poor O-line for that if you want, but I'm not sure that situation is going to be much better with the Texans. Arizona and Houston ranked back-to-back in adjusted line yards over at Football Outsiders in 2019, uh, 21st and 22nd respectively. They ranked 25th and 27th respectively in 2018, plus Drake averaged 5.2 yards per carry with the same O-line as David Johnson. Still, I, I think we have to project a more solidified workload for David Johnson. He has to be considered a winner in terms of free agency on his own own outlook and his ADP and fan balls best ball tens put him at RB 35 I'm sure that's going to rise up that's like a late eighth early ninth round pick how much higher do you think he should climb in ADP 
Well, I currently have him uh, 26 in uh, our half PPR, uh, never too early rankings. Uh, he's in that group beneath uh, Marlon Mack, James Conner. He's with uh, Karrion Johnson, Kareem Hunt, Philip Lindsay, those types of guys. I think the I think the workload will be there. They obviously think very highly of him, given all that they gave up in order to get him. So I, you know, I think he probably sees a lion's share as it touches in that offense, and it's a fairly productive offense. So you know, maybe a bounce back season in terms of volume is, is going to be there. I just don't know that he's going to have the same type of production that we saw from him early in his career. What do you think about Jordan Howard landing with Miami Dolphins? Because his number of targets per game has declined in every season since entering the NFL. So even if Howard is considered a winner in free agency, I'm not sure how much value a running back with no receiving upside has. It seems to me like Howard is still a stay away in any formats that use PPR scoring. But what do you think? Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I mean, there is the chance that they may decide to use him as a as more as a as a receiver. He has supposedly been working on it over the years and hasn't looked terrible in that realm when he has the opportunity to catch passes, but he just doesn't, you know, teams haven't thrown him the ball hardly at all. You're looking at probably more of a, of a standard type running back. Uh, you know, it's going to thrive in standard formats. As you know, he's a threat for eight to 10 touchdowns because he's, you know, there's almost has no real competition there right now uh, for touches. Uh, Patrick Laird, I guess, could be the passing down back there. I don't think Kalen Balaj, that that's going to, happen much more uh the Kalen Blage experiment uh didn't didn't go real great last year so I think it's Howard and maybe Laird uh but this is a team that could definitely draft a running back you know in the first three or four rounds and all of a sudden have some competition there for Howard but a really good landing spot for him you know from where he was like he's yeah he's the RB1 there now and you know he has a chance you know if the offense improves a little bit that he could post RB2 numbers in half PPR formats uh, you know if he gets 20 or 25 catches you talked about that risk of them drafting another running back. I'm a little worried about that with Todd Gurley as well, who ended up with the Atlanta Falcons. If they bring in another back to compete with Gurley for touches, do you see that as being a major issue, or are you okay with Gurley You know where he's going in drafts? I think that I'm okay with it. I, this is really a good landing spot for him, given the fact that he was cut. You know, Once he was cut, you're like, oh, where's he going to land, and how's this all going to work? But this was basically a plug-and-play for Devonta Freeman and uh, his 17.4 touches per game that he's vacating, you know, if they if they do draft a running back, I don't think that Gurley's workload will be too much under pressure unless he's unless the knee issue starts to sort of pop up again because they gave him I think five million and that's starting that's starting running back money at this point. So uh, yeah. I'm expecting him to have carry the workload. And they probably are just going to feed him the ball and if they do draft a, a a rookie that he's just going to learn sit and learn and, and you know they'll reassess the position at the end of the season well speaking of vacated touches Gurley is vacating about 18 opportunities you know carries plus targets from the rams so how do you see that workload being divided between malcolm brown and darrell henderson in los angeles yeah this is an interesting situation because i've seen people jump you know really excited about uh daryl henderson with this move and I, I can see it i mean certainly there's going to be opportunity for him especially if brown falters but the, what we have to work off of is last year's uh workload with you know Gurley being maintained in terms of his touches and brown out touched uh, henderson 71 to 43 last year so it wasn't like henderson you know averaged more yards per carry or significantly more yards per carry in the backup role to brown uh, so we'll have to see how this shakes out. You know, this might be more of a 50-50 split. It might be a 60-40 with Brown leading or could flip it to 60-40 with Henderson. So we kind of have to read the tea leaves and look in uh, what they're doing in uh, OTAs if they ever hold them and a uh, training camp to sort of see how this uh, pecking order, you know, shakes out. And then they're also a threat to, to draft another running back too with Gurley out of the way. What is your take on Damian Williams? Because I look at him re-signing with the Kansas City Chiefs. It's not really a change for him because he was already there, but re-signing with the NFL's best offense has to be considered a win, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's a fantastic offense. And if he's the RB1 there uh, for the entire season, he's going to be a fantasy RB1. It's just it's too productive uh, of an offense. And they were playing some games with the touches last year with Sean McCoy and Darwin Thompson and Daryl Williams. Uh, but when it came down to crunch time, they leaned on Damian Williams again. His last seven games, uh, including the postseason, uh, he had a stranglehold on the backfield, 18 touches, 18.6 touches for 110 total yards and 1.57 touchdowns per game. And then I went back to look at 2018 as well because he had five games where he was the, the bell cow there. And it, the numbers are almost exactly the same, 18.6 touches for 114 total yards and 1.60 touchdowns 
in five games. So, you know, we've seen him over a 12 uh, game set here, uh, basically perform as the fantasy RB1 in the league. If he could put that together during the regular season, he's going to be a fantastic value in the fourth or fifth round. But, uh, you know, he burned people last year and there's still questions about his, you know, overall talent. Um, and it's just a situation play. So, you know, will Andy Reid play more games with the, uh, with the touches during the season? Um, but I think as a fourth or fifth round pick, he's got first round upside if he ends up uh, in the same role that he finished last year. So I want to follow up on that a little bit, just kind of from a strategic angle. When it comes time to actually draft a best ball team or uh, maybe a, a seasonal team when we get closer to the start of the season, if these ADPs were to hold, how aggressively would you maybe overshoot the ADP to, to get a guy around early? Um, what's your approach to correcting ahead of the ADP, if that makes sense? Well, you if you want your guy, you got to get your guy. You sort of have to put uh, uh, grades on, on players. And he's like, right now I'm looking at the FFPC best ball last seven days. So currently he's going six, I guess, 602 there on average. So behind Mostert and Cam Akers and David Johnson and Carrion Johnson. I think that's too low. So I would definitely be starting to think about him around earlier, uh, at least fifth round. Uh, and then you just kind of are looking at him relative to your rankings. So, you know, maybe I take Marlon Mack over him. Maybe I don't, you know, Marlon Mack's going four seven. So, you know, you're, you're faced with that decision. If you have Williams ahead of Mack, then you go ahead and take him in the fourth round. Um, but you, you can also, uh, pass on him if you think that your league mates are going to it sort of depends on the league if you think your league mates aren't high on Damian Williams then you know you can probably get him in the fifth round as well yeah I see the same sort of thing coming up with the Rams running backs with Malcolm Brown and Darrell Henderson where right now they're buried in the rankings they're buried in ADP but we know now that Gurley is officially out of there that they need to go up in those rankings in ADP I just don't know how high and how much you overshoot those rankings um, so it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. We've got to be mindful of that as we're drafting. But uh, those are the running back winners that we're going to talk about. Let's talk about some of the losers at the position. Tell me about Duke Johnson, because we've already discussed the boost in value for David Johnson joining the Texans. And I think that's bad news for the incumbent, right? Yeah, and it's the it's the skill set that's the problem here. I mean, they, they gave up a third-round pick, I believe, for Duke Johnson you know, before they signed Carlos Hyde, and they proceeded to treat Carlos Hyde like you know, they'd given up a third rounder for him when they just signed him off the street. And, you know, Hyde actually ran really well for them last year, and that's why they went to him. But, but Duke had a role, and he had some good games because of his role. He's a lot better than Carlos Hyde as a receiver, but uh, David Johnson can catch the ball as well as Duke Johnson. So we don't necessarily know how much Duke Johnson's actually going to play. If David's rolling, he may be a three-down back for that team or at least a, you know, two-and-a-half-down back, and that's going to cut into Duke Johnson's uh, uh, opportunities there. Melvin Gordon has joined the Broncos, and the consensus seems to peg Royce Freeman as the, the big loser there in Denver at running back, with Philip Lindsay's part-time role remaining safe in theory. But I'm worried that this timeshare is going to frustrate the fantasy owners of all three guys. What's your take on the new-look Denver backfield? I think Freeman basically goes to the bench and doesn't play a whole lot. Uh, I think uh, Melvin Gordon gets uh, Lindsay's role because I don't think they want to give him 259 touches if they can avoid that. They probably feel like he's a better giving his a little bit smaller back, he's, he's better in, a, in a, a backup role or a change of pace role. So I could see Lindsey getting the, you know, the Freeman's role of 175 touches, um, maybe some more catches. Melvin Gordon taking over that the bell cow role, 260 touches or so. That might end up being closer between Gordon and Lindsey if Gordon doesn't get off to a good start and, and run the ball significantly, not necessarily significantly better than Lindsey, but if he's just as effective as Lindsey, he's probably safe. But if Lindsey's like outgaining him a half a yard or a yard per carry, uh, then you might see more of a 50-50 timeshare between those two players. And I talked about Nick Chubb on the last episode with George Kritikos, but I want to get your temperature on him as well, because with Kareem Hunt returning to Cleveland, th that was a little bit expected. But now that it's official, are you downgrading Chubb at all? Uh, I was well. I was expecting him too, so I wasn't, you know, uh, Hunt to resign, so I didn't really move Chubb around much. I currently have him at RB five, and I think that might be a little bit. Uh, aggressive uh, but you know i have my issues with derrick henry and joe mixon too i want to see how the offseason sort of pans out for for mixon especially but chubb if you look at last year the first nine weeks he was the rb5 um so i'm currently ranked him at his uh, ceiling there from week 10 to week 17 he was the fantasy rb15 that's with cream hunt now you know playing in that backfield cream hunt was you know siphoning off quite a few catches and touchdowns uh, i think the one thing that is uh, sort of makes me optimistic about Chubb with with Hunt in the backfield is that uh, Kevin Stefanski is the 
head, head coach there now, and he ran the ball heavily last year. The, yeah. the, the uh, Vikings, I think, had the third or fourth most rushes. Uh, they were extremely uh, run-heavy relative to the league. So uh, that bodes very well, I think, for Chubb and even for Hunt as a you know, rotational RB3 type player as well. So I think the pie, the rushing pie is going to go up there and that's going to offset uh, Hunt being active with along with Chubb. Well, as a follow-up to that, does that give you concern about the passing options in Cleveland? Yes, it does. I was just talking with TJ Hernandez about that today and uh, he had a, a, a good uh, stat, which I'll share later about uh, Austin Hooper. Um, but, you know, you look at Stefan Diggs last year, uh, Adam Thielen missed six or seven games, I think with injury. Diggs finished uh, wide receiver 21. That's very concerning because, you know, you have Odell Beckham, you have Jarvis Landry if he's healthy with that hip, you have uh, Austin Hooper, you have uh, uh, David Njoku, you have Kareem Hunt catching passes, you have Nick Chubb catching passes. So uh, you just wonder how big that passing pie is going to be. And I'm, I'm specifically worried about the wide receivers. If Landry is out, you know, at the start of the season with the hip injury, then it's not as big of a concern. But if they're if Landry's active and, and Beckham's active, then I really wonder if there's going to be enough passes to go around for everybody. Well, speaking of passers, let's get to quarterbacks. I wanted to discuss running backs ahead of the other positions, but the biggest story coming out of free agency was certainly Tom Brady's departure from New England to join the Tampa Bay Bucks. So now fantasy owners are left to weigh Brady's age, his declining skills, versus the awesome upgrade he's getting in terms of receiving weapons and team philosophy. Brady gets to throw to Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, and Tampa Bay led the NFL in passing yards last season. They, they essentially tied for second with two other teams in pass attempts. So, John, where do you stand on Tom Brady's value with his new team? This is a really good landing spot for him, given the uh, given the, the weapons there that you mentioned. I mean, this is probably his best set of weapons in quite a while. Maybe when there was a healthy Gronk and Edelman was playing and Randy Moss was <laughs> on the on the Patriots. I mean, this was a, a big upgrade from what he was dealing with last year. Uh, there is some degradation, I think, in terms of his total talent, although I've heard reports that his arm strength was not the issue last year. I think, you know, you're also looking at a defense that is not as good as it was for him last year with the Patriots. They were winning games because of their defense, and uh, the Bucks are probably going to have to score more in, in order to win games this year than um, what the Patriots had to do last year. So, I mean, I moved Brady up to RB15, uh, or I'm sorry, quarterback 15. Uh, he was probably a quarterback 20, 21 or something uh, prior to uh, the move. So, you know, I see a big upgrade in, in terms of weapons, and I think that's going to help him across the board. I don't think he's totally washed. Um, you know, are the days of him, you know, throwing 35, 40 touchdowns over probably, but, uh, you know, he could certainly uh, put up some numbers in this offense. So we've got a good offensive mind there with Bruce Arians. Um, but you just look at the Bucks in, in all and, uh, you know, the third in passing yards last year, seventh in completions, third in passing touchdowns. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of room to improve on that. And I think, you know, Chris Godwin and Mike Evans may be hard-pressed to match their numbers from last year. Let's go back to Arizona, where the hype for Kyler Murray is already ramping up now that the Cardinals have added DeAndre Hopkins. Murray went as as the QB3 at pick 7.02 in a best ball draft I'm currently doing. And a few days ago, our friend TJ, who you just mentioned, tweeted about Murray going as the QB3 at pick 5.08. How reasonable to you is that quarterback three price tag, and where would you be willing to consider drafting him in best ball? Well, you look at it kind of holistically. Uh, you know, Murray came out, uh, fared really well in my uh, quarterback model. I looked at uh, college stats to sort of predict uh, rookie uh, stats, and uh, so uh, you know, op- optimistic on him from that from that standpoint. Also, he runs the ball a lot, which is great having. Uh, that uh, Konami code, as they call it, uh, at that position. Last year, he finished QB8, and it didn't even seem like he was having that great of a year. It just seemed like quite a few disappointing outings in that, you know, real-world type disappointment outings in those in those games and some of those weeks. And, you know, he fit, still finished QB8, and he added one of the best receivers in the league. Plus, he's got the, you know, another year under his belt in experience, so he should improve on that front as well. And I think, uh, you know, getting Kenyon Drake, back kind of makes this offense hum a little bit more and he's also drake's also a very good receiver who can make explosive plays in the passing game so these are just all arrows pointing up i think qb3 is actually reasonable um i right now have russell wilson and Dak prescott ahead of him uh, along with mahomes at one and lamar jackson at two but you know i could easily put murray over over wilson or look at those three as a tier there of quarterbacks that you know after the top two guys yeah, it's going to be really tough to sort that out in drafts. That is going to be a key point of contention is who do you take after Lamar Jackson and after Mahomes are off the board. Another quarterback whose arrow is pointing up is Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills, thanks to the free agency addition of Stephon Diggs. 
How much does this improvement in his supporting cast uh, boost his fantasy value going forward? Yeah, I mean, they added uh, John Brown last year along with Cole Beasley. Uh, he ended up QB7 fantasy-wise. I mean, a lot of that is his rushing, but his passing numbers improved because he had better weapons to throw to. And, you know, adding it, I mean, Diggs is a bona fide wide receiver one. Uh, he's got a little bit of the diva attitude to him, but he's he's going to demand targets and uh, he's going to be he's going to want to be involved. I mean, the one problem with Allen is maybe that is Buffalo in the winter is not the most friendly place to pass. But, you know, QB seven last year without Diggs. Yeah, I think that he should be right there. QB seven with Diggs in there. Uh, maybe you could you could even argue and I wouldn't be surprised that he's going to move ahead of Watson from an ADP standpoint uh, with Deshaun Watson losing uh, uh, DeAndre Hopkins. So I, I think that's probably on the horizon as well. I don't know if I would agree with that, but uh, we, we can talk about Hopkins or we can talk about Watson a little bit later. Um, let's talk about Teddy Bridgewater next because entering free agency, we weren't really sure if he would land a starting gig, right? But the Carolina Panthers seemingly want to give him that chance. They sign him to a three-year deal with $33 million guaranteed. Teddy's job security might be a little bit more uncertain with today's news that Carolina also signed PJ Walker or Philip Walker from the XFL. But I think it is safe to assume Bridgewater will hold down the starting gig in 2020. What do you think of this new situation with Bridgewater and the Panthers? Well, it's obviously a great move for him going from a backup to now being a starter. He's got DJ Moore, uh, Curtis Samuel, Christian McCaffrey. It's a nice receiving trio. Ian Thomas at tight end. It's a good situation for him. I think the one kind of knock on him is that he doesn't push the ball deep enough, uh, although his uh, deep deep accuracy last year was uh, quite good. Uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to see if, if the, the Panthers ask him to throw the ball deep more, if, that can get, if he can get out of this dink and dunk type uh, mindset uh, that he is, well, at least it was in last year with the Saints, to really make a big play and have a big fantasy season. If he's if he's just going to dink and dunk, he's going to be okay, but he's not going to have those big uh, three, four touchdown games with huge yardage that uh, you kind of hope for out of your fantasy quarterback. How about Tyrod Taylor? Because with Phillip Rivers gone, Taylor is slated to open the season under center for the Chargers, but I feel like we've seen this movie before with Taylor, most recently in 2018, where he was supplanted in week three by rookie Baker Mayfield. I fully expect the Chargers to add a quarterback, either in the draft or otherwise, in Camp Newton maybe, and that Taylor will be lucky to hold the starting role all season. But how do you see this situation playing out? Yeah, I mean, it, the draft will tell us a lot. Um, and obviously, you know, Jameis Winston, which is not really probably an, op, uh, an option for the Chargers since he turns the ball over a lot, but he's still out there. Uh, Cam Newton's still out there. Those are two good quarterbacks that they could certainly use. I, I do like the fact that Taylor could start. I mean, he averaged 17.5 fantasy points per game and 45 starts from 2015 to 2018. And that would have been the 13th highest average in 2019, uh, bolstered by his ability to run the ball. It's like Konami code again, 36 rushing yards per game, 0.31 uh, rush touchdowns per game over that span. Uh, he's got a nice group of receivers there. Uh, Hunter Henry, uh, Mike Williams, and uh, Keenan Allen, of course, and uh, Austin Eckler can catch the ball. So if he is the starter, you're looking at a very good value in the QB2 ranks, uh, late round quarterback options. But yeah, he's got to get through free agency. He's got to get through the draft without them adding a guy who could possibly start this year. Because if Taylor's in there, I think he'll probably manage them to some wins and they'll be playoff in playoff contention. He probably won't get benched. But if it's another Baker Mayfield situation where they drafted a uh, you know, first round quarterback, then uh, he's, he's probably headed for the bench. The last major winner I see at quarterback is Gardner Minshew of the Jaguars. Like Taylor, the path to secure playing time has been cleared for Minshew now that Nick Foles has been shipped out to Chicago. But unlike Taylor, Minshew's outlook feels a lot safer to me thanks to the solid showing he had as a rookie, the fact that he's so young. Per Bobby Koch on Twitter, at Wrecked wrecked Fantasy, among all rookies over the past 10 years, the 14-game start to Minshew's career ranks ninth in passing yards, third in passing touchdowns, the third fewest in interceptions, sixth in adjusted yards per attempt, and 10th in completion percentage. Is it fair to expect any sort of step forward from Minshew in year two? Well, I think any quarterback probably is going to be, you know, have a year under his belt is probably going to be improved. The fantasy numbers don't always respond that way. I've studied the rookie quarterbacks in the past. It really falls into two groups. The, The rookie quarterbacks that come in and light the league on fire tend to regress, and the ones that struggle in their first seasons but to continue to start and end up progressing uh and increasing their fantasy points per game so i think Minshew probably fall in that second category because i don't think he was tearing it up on a fantasy uh, you know from a fantasy standpoint i'm a little less bullish in him being the you know the starting quarterback uh, week one for this team i think that with cam newton and 
Winston's still out there and possibly drafting a quarterback in the, in the draft. I just feel like after that London game where he just totally melted down, I didn't think that I didn't get the feeling that the Jaguars were totally committed to him being the starter. So I don't know that this whole situation is very subtle. Now let's move on to the losers at the quarterback position. We just mentioned Nick Foles moving to the Bears, and George Kritikos and I discussed this on last week's show, but this has to be the death knell for Mitchell Trubisky's starting role, right, with Foles joining the team? Yeah, I I mean, he may end up winning the job back or winning the job and being the week one starter, but certainly the chances of him being the starter in week one have to decrease uh, drastically. So I I think they've seen enough of Trubisky at this point, but time will tell. How about Deshaun Watson? We talked a little bit about him earlier. He isn't going to lose his gig as the Texans quarterback, but how much do you think he's going to be hurt by the loss of DeAndre Hopkins? Yeah, I had him at three, I think, prior to the to the move, and uh, I moved him down below Kyler Murray, QB6 right now. He's with uh, Josh Allen at QB7, Aaron Rodgers, QB8. It's a big, I think it's a big blow to his, his upside. Uh, I think he can still post a, a you know, mid-range QB1 season. That's why I have him ranked where I have him ranked. He's... You know, he can run the ball. He can run, rush for touchdowns. He's got his receivers certainly have taken a hit in terms of talent losing Hopkins, but he still has, you know, some decent receivers. If Will Fuller can stay healthy, you know, Kenny Stills is pretty good. Randall Cobb's not bad. David Johnson and uh, Duke Johnson can catch the ball. He's got some tight ends there as well. He could still produce quite a bit, and the whole offense pretty much runs through him. So I just don't see him as a top three quarterback anymore. Yeah, I just wonder how much he might be able to offset a decline in passing stats with more rushing production. Do you think that that's feasible? It's possible. Um, I don't know that they're going to ask him, like, uh, you know, design runs or how is this going? How is this going to go through his head where I drop back and I don't have Hopkins to throw to, so I take off and run? That's possible. I don't know that they're going to run more design runs for him. Uh, I think uh, I don't know. If Bill Bryan is that flexible with his, with his uh, the way he thinks, but certainly you could see his uh, scrambles uh, tick up if he uh, doesn't have Hopkins as a safety blanket. Would you consider Kirk Cousins a loser coming out of free agency? It's not like he was throwing all that much to Stephon Diggs, but how much does losing a talented wide receiver like that hurt the quarterback stock, do you think? It's a big deal, I think, because you look at their receiving core now, and it, you know, Diggs was, you know, him and Thielen were basically 1A, 1B, and then they had, you know, a couple tight ends there and not much else going on, and now you've lost Diggs. So, yeah, I would call him a loser in this. I think Thielen is the only winner in this whole thing because he could see 130, 150. Uh, targets as the as the team's number one receiver. Do you worry about Thielen's ability to hold up if he sees you know that level of involvement? Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime you're you're increasing reps and he was all dinged up last year, so uh, you, you wonder if that was more of an aberration or if this is now the start of him you know being injury prone. But uh, I think you kind of try to put that out of your mind and you look at okay, if you're agnostic towards injuries and you think he's going to play 16 games and he's going to be a borderline wide receiver one, uh, given the volume there, uh, you know, even with the, the Vikings being so run heavy, they still have to throw the ball half the time. And, uh, I don't know who they're going to throw it to besides, uh, Thielen, you know, Rudolph and you know, the other, the rookie, uh, tight end there. Speaking of borderline wide receiver ones, let's move on to winners at the wide receiver position with T Y Hilton of the Colts. And he's getting an upgrade here at quarterback, moving from Jacoby Brissett to Phillip Rivers. Uh, I'm just not sure how much of an upgrade it is. What do you think? I am fairly bullish after looking at Rivers' numbers. He wasn't great last year, finished QB 16 or 18 or something, somewhere in that range, and you're kind of expecting more out of him. He threw a ton of interceptions. Um, but if you just look at the volume of the passing game, you know, he's not, he's a, he's a pocket passer. Brissett, you know, would take off and run quite a bit. Uh, so uh, completions per game last year, Rivers 24.4, Brissett 18.1. So you got six extra catches there. And then uh, look at passing yards, 288 yards passing for Rivers, 196 passing yards for Brissett. So almost 100 yards, 80, whatever, 90 yards uh, passing there. So just the pie is bigger. Uh, you also have Rivers um, reuniting with uh, Frank Reich and his, you know, arguably his best span of his career there in uh, San Diego with, with Reich at, at quarterback coach and then the offensive coordinator i think so um i'm fairly optimistic about this for for hilton and the whole passing offense i just think they're going to be throwing the ball a bit more and there's going to be significantly more yardage there because rivers is not totally washed up yet and i think he's you know a better passer at this point in his career than uh jacoby Brissett still yeah for hilton specifically i dug in a little bit to some deep ball numbers for Brissett versus rivers and i found something called the deep ball project by john kinsley at Brickwall blitz on twitter i'll link those in the show notes um jacoby Brissett was the 24th best deep ball passer in 2019 while rivers was the 18th best so a slight upgrade there but i should note that 
that 18th place ranking for Rivers and deep ball accuracy was a big fall off from sixth place the year prior. So I, I'm a little worried that we are seeing a decline in skills with Rivers like we are with Brady and that, uh, you know, if that continues, if he continues to get a little bit worse, then maybe we are overrating the the amount of win here for T.Y. Hilton. And just in general, what do you think about the idea that, you know, receivers in year one with a new quarterback tend to not produce to the level of expectation that we normally have? Is that something you're worried about here? Well, I haven't studied it. Uh, I've studied receivers changing teams, and typically when a receiver changes teams, if he doesn't get a big upgrade in terms of targets usage or an upgrade at quarterback, then his per-game production is going to decline on average. Uh, I would say with the one caveat to what you're talking about, the deep ball project, one thing that would be interesting to look at, look at is actually the number of deep balls that were thrown by Rivers per game and Brissett per game because I think that volume you know, with six extra attempts per game uh, in, in completion, I'm sorry, uh, six extra completions per game, that the volume of uh, the deep ball uh, opportunities will increase and offset any sort of uh, degradation in uh, Philip Rivers' uh, accuracy, even though he is better than Brissett as of last year. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was looking at uh, next-gen stats as well on NFL.com, and while Rivers and Brissett essentially were equal in terms of aggressiveness, which tracks the amount of passing attempts a quarterback makes into tight coverage, Rivers was consistently throwing a little bit deeper on average than Brissett, uh, closer to the first down marker uh, on average, and in general throwing more deep balls. So I, I think there is uh, something to that. Uh, but let's move on to Emmanuel Sanders. He signed with the New Orleans Saints, and Landing in the Big Easy might be the best possible outcome for him because the Saints didn't really have a legitimate second threat at wideout behind Michael Thomas. With the help of Drew Brees and Sean Payton, do you think that Sanders can shake that trend of receivers underperforming when they change teams? Yeah, I think from a volume standpoint, I, I don't think it's going to take a you know much of a drop from uh, from San Francisco to New Orleans, given how much they throw the ball, or at least throw the ball at home. I don't think they wanted to throw Michael Thomas the ball as much as they did last year, so I think this is part of the reason that they brought in Sanders was to maybe lessen his load a little bit. Uh, Sanders has played at a 78.3 catch pace over the last two seasons. So he's still playing at a very high level. And I think he could push 70, 80 catches in this offense. Uh, you know, there, there isn't a whole lot of volume outside of Thomas and Jared Cook and Alvin Kamara available, but I think he, he eats a little bit from each one of those guys in order to, to get to his 70, 80 catches next year. Well, let's circle back one more time to the DeAndre Hopkins for David Johnson trade. And Houston also did sign Randall Cobb, as you mentioned. But this does still figure to create more opportunity for Will Fuller and for Kenny Stills. How are you going to project the Texans receiver core in 2020? Well, I think the key is Fuller and what number of games are you expecting him to play? I mean, the guy is extremely productive when he plays and then he you know, will miss a lot of games or he has. Um, if he plays 16 games, he's probably going to finish as a, you know, in the top 15 fantasy points. Hopkins averaged 10.1 targets per game. So, you know, you're probably looking at Fuller, Stills, and Cobb, you know, each getting a, a portion of that. It, I think it all comes down to Fuller and his health. I think if he's healthy, he's the wide receiver one there. Stills is the two, and Cobb is the slot guy. If Fuller is out, all of a sudden you have Kenny Stills in kind of a wide receiver one role. Uh, and I don't know that he's well suited for that, but at least from a volume standpoint, he could post some big fantasy games. I, I think if I took Fuller at Fuller, I would probably take Stills as a sort of an attrition play because if Fuller goes down, Stills probably uh, just to produce more. Yeah, this is another one of those situations like Malcolm Brown and Darrell Henderson where I see where these guys are going in drafts and I think that they're both probably undervalued at this moment right now. Right now, yeah. We'll see if they add anybody in the draft. And again, the, the questions with Fuller's health are ever-present, so that's always something to worry about. But in best ball, you can kind of smooth that out with more depth at the wide receiver position. I'm fascinated to see, you know, what their win rates will be, uh, you know, when 2020 is all said and done. But let's move on to Chicago. Uh, Allen Robinson, Anthony Miller. Are these Bears receivers better off with Nick Foles at QB, you think? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, specifically, Miller uh, should benefit from Foles' propensity to throw to the slot. Uh, we're going to double check those numbers with T.J. Hernandez. I asked him to, to look at that again. Because it was it was looking good for D.D. Westbrook, you know, heading into last year, uh, due to Foles' propensity to throw to the slot, but he's more accurate. I mean, Trubisky regularly ranks in the bottom quartile in uh, PFF's adjusted uh, completion percentage, so he's basically an inaccurate thrower. Uh, in 2018, Foles was sixth out of uh, 20, 39 qualified quarterbacks in that metric. He wasn't particularly good in 2014 or 2015. I think one of those years where he was in St. Louis. Uh, but he was ninth in 2013 during his uh, fairly epic 27 touchdown two interception season with Philly. So I don't know that those types of numbers 
you know, we're going to see that type of touchdown throwing from him. But I certainly I think his accuracy is is better than Trubisky, and that's got to benefit uh, Robinson and Miller. Let's pivot over to losers at the wide receiver position. And earlier we tabbed Josh Allen as a winner at QB thanks to the addition of Stephon Diggs. So why do you have Diggs, John Brown, and Cole Beasley all tabbed as losers from the free agency period? Uh, yeah, you're, you're adding a, a really good receiver to a, a team that tends to run the ball uh, more. Uh, the Bills attempted 513 passes last year. They were 25th in that, met, uh, in that stat. Vikings attempted 466, so they were 30th in that stat. So he is going to a team that throws the ball a bit more. But the Vikings actually completed 20 more passes than the Bills did thanks to Cousins' accuracy relative to, to Josh Allen. So this is just because the pass attempts go up. It doesn't mean it's better for, for Diggs. Um, you know, he's joining a team uh, where John Brown saw 115 targets, Beasley saw 106. The next highest were Dawson Knox at 50 targets, uh, Devin Singletary at 41 targets. But there were 101 wide receiver targets not destined for Brown and Beasley last year. So that's interesting. Like there's if, if they end up going where they're playing those three guys and that's it, uh, it's feasible that they could all have 90-plus targets, which I think is interesting because maybe you don't downgrade him uh, digs as much as you might think he would because they were trying to they were trying to throw to other receivers but it wasn't too productive uh i think the other thing that you have to worry about with digs is now you have buffalo weather in november and december versus playing indoors in minnesota in november december and that's going to downgrade the, the overall passing game for that team and you know during those months the you know less fewer touchdowns fewer passing yards all that so uh that's why i would describe him as a loser i think you know you don't don't have to write these guys off, but I think you're, you're worried now about Diggs coming into this receiving core and how much is he going to command in terms of targets. Let's go back to New Orleans where, you know, with the Saints signing of Manny Sanders, the redraft dream is likely dead for Traquan Smith. But do you think that he could still deliver enough high variance splash weeks to be worth maybe a late round best ball dart throw here and there? Uh, possible. I mean, I, you know, looking at the wide receiver targets, not, uh, directed towards Michael Thomas last year. There's only 87 for New Orleans wide receivers. So, you know, if Emmanuel Sanders comes in and gets 90 and maybe he takes 10 or 15 or 20 from Thomas, that doesn't leave a whole lot for, for Smith if, if they keep the same volume and they keep the same volume to the uh, to the receivers. But they're going to need a third receiver to be on the field. And, uh, you know, Smith probably is going to be that guy. Uh, but he may end up in that low-volume Ted Ginn role where maybe he's seeing three or four targets a game and blows up occasionally. So, yeah, maybe 16th, 18th round. Uh, I'm interested to see where his ADP lands after this Emmanuel Sanders trade sort of hits all these drafts. But uh, he certainly doesn't have the breakout potential that we we had without Sanders there. Back to Arizona and their wide receivers. Do you think we should expect fewer targets or at least more weekly variants from Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald now that they're contending for work with DeAndre Hopkins? Yeah, you're adding a guy that they traded for and wanted and you know, was a 10-plus target guy. You're adding him to the offense. It's going to affect Kirk and Fitzgerald. I mean, Fitzgerald's numbers have been declining you know, over the last few years. As he gets older, he can still serve as that slot guy, five or six targets, uh, go-to for, for first downs and stuff like that. But you know, Hopkins is going to get some of that work as well. I think Kirk still has upside, but heading into this season, his upside is obviously lower with, with Hopkins in the fold. So the Cardinals were, you know, middle of the road as um, as a pass offense as a whole, but they want to play fast. They want to play a lot of, you know, run a lot of plays. And if they can, if the offense takes a leap forward with, you know, Mur- uh, Kyler Murray getting an extra year under his belt, Hopkins in the fold, maybe more first downs, longer drives, more yardage gained, uh, more points that could help everybody. You know, the, the rising ocean lifts all boats type of a thought. But anytime you add a, a guy that gets 10 plus targets to an offense, it's going to impact the other players. Earlier, we talked about the upgrade for T.Y. Hilton from Jacoby Brissett to Phillip Rivers. Now, how about the flip side where Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are going from Phillip Rivers to Tyrod Taylor? How much of a downgrade is that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, if they if they use t- Taylor in a similar way that they used him in Buffalo, it's a, it's a significant drop. I mentioned the 288 yards passing last year for Rivers, 24.4 completions per game. Looking at Tyrod Taylor, he averaged between 187 yards passing and 217 yards passing in his three seasons as a starter. He averaged 17.6 completions per game. Uh, so everything is, you know, lower. So it's a smaller passing pie, and that's going to hurt Keenan Allen and Mike Williams uh, and Hunter Henry. 
Another reason to maybe fade the passing game for the Chargers is all the focus they seemingly put on their defense in free agency, highlighted by the signing of cornerback Chris Harris. I imagine that they're going to want to slow slow games down a little bit, run the ball a lot if possible, and I don't think that bodes super well for their receivers. And on that note, I also wouldn't be shocked if they added another running back who could potentially eat into Austin Eckler's workload. But uh, anyway, I'm getting off topic. Uh, Let's move on to tight ends, tight end winners. Uh, Blake Jarwin of the Dallas Cowboys. I've talked enough about Jarwin on this show already, so I'm going to clear out for you, John. What's your take on him now that Jason Witten is no longer with the Cowboys? Yeah, I heard you were gushing about him in the last week or two. Uh, I Yeah, I think he's right now the late-round tight end that I would target um, with, with Witten out of there. Where Jarwin has the, all the metrics that you want for a guy who's about to break out. Eighth in yard, uh, yards per route run last year, according to PFF. He could see his routes increased 500-plus this year. Uh, and if he does and sort of keeps up the same production that he, that he had, uh, he's gonna, he's gonna be a fantasy tight end one. I, I think he's a great pick right now in the double digit rounds. It'd be interesting to see how high his ADP actually rises because I know he's a, a fantasy darling right now with, uh, the way things are sort of clearing out for him to, to be the tight end one there. Hayden Hurst. Uh, escaped a tight end logjam of his own in Baltimore for the open waters of Atlanta's tight end group. Do you think that Hurst can approximate enough of the departed Austin Hooper's 2019 production to be fantasy viable in 2020? I do. Uh, Hooper ran 36.8 routes per game last year, which is the most at his position. Um, Hurst, Hayden Hurst's yards per route run was actually higher than Hooper's last year, 11th highest at tight end, according to PFF. So, uh, again, the fundamentals here look really good for for Hurst. Uh, you know, I think touchdown wise is the question. You know, does he have the same sort of presence that Hooper had last year? But he should be on the field a lot. They obviously traded for him for a reason after Hooper walked, and Matt Ryan, you know, used Hooper quite a bit last year, and I think he's going to want to use Hurst as well. And, and it looks like he is almost as good, or should be almost as productive as as Hooper was last year uh, for the Falcons this year. What does Indy's addition of Phil Rivers do for Jack Doyle in your mind? Do you think that he's going to take another step forward here, at least a slight one? Yeah, there's a couple things going on here with Doyle because he's got Rivers in now. We, we mentioned the uh, increase in passing passing game pie with the increase in yardage and completions. So that bodes well for him. Uh, Rivers does have a history of throwing the tight ends, although over the last couple of years, uh, really nothing special in terms of uh, target share for his tight ends. But he has a history of, of throwing the tight ends over the years. So the volume's going up, the, the completions are going to go up, and then the other issue is, uh, or the other plus is that Eric Ebron has moved on. So if you look at what Doyle did with Ebron on the roster last year, he averaged 28.0 routes in the five games that Ebron missed, uh, and just 20.6 uh, routes run in the first 11 games. So his, uh, you know, opportunity rose with Ebron out, which is what we would think it would would happen. Uh, and if he's a, you know, nearly a full-time player next year, uh, he should push for tight end one numbers as well, especially in PPR formats. The last tight end I see is a potential winner here, and I it's, it's very speculative at this point, is O.J. Howard with Tampa Bay. Was his lack of involvement last season more on quarterback Jameis Winston or coach Bruce Arians in your mind? And do you think that Tom Brady can change that and turn things around for Howard in 2020? You know, it's tough to say because it just didn't seem like he was a big part of the game plan. It was almost like Winston was... Going into every game, either going, he was either going to pepper Mike Evans with targets or Chris Godwin with targets. And anybody else that had a good game was sort of random or just, just roll the dice whether or not you're going to get a, a good game out of any of these other guys. OJ Howard, inter- interestingly, he was, uh, he led, led the league last, over the last two seasons in uh, yards per target. Uh, so when the ball is thrown to him, he, he has done well, but the, you know, getting targets is a skill as well. You know, from a yards per route run standpoint, he was pretty average, pretty middle of the road. Uh, but in, back in 2018, he was third in that metric yards per route run. So we know he has it in him in terms of production on a routes run standpoint. The question is, are they going to have him as a regular part of the offense? And Arians just really hasn't used a tight end much in his offense. However, now with Tom Brady in there, uh, he has thrown to the tight end quite a bit. He likes to throw the tight end. And if they start to kind of convert the offense into more of a dink and dunk uh, offense that suits itself to Brady's uh, skill set at this point, then you should see some more uh, completions there for, for OJ Howard. Yeah, it probably depends on how much input Tom Brady has on the offensive game plans. And I imagine he'll have a lot and also upon how much he trusts OJ Howard. And that's just going to be a big question mark. We just don't know. Uh, let's move on to tight end losers. And let's start with the guys in Cleveland, David Njoku and Austin Hooper. We talked about Njoku on the last episode, so maybe we should focus on Hooper here. 
a lot of people are going to be considering him just as good as he was last year. Uh, why are you doubting that, John? I have a few, I have him a few spots down uh, because you're changing teams now. He doesn't have a defined role necessarily with Cleveland at this point. Uh, I mentioned the Kevin Stefanski uh, run-heavy offense that's going to probably hurt Hooper as well. But TJ Hernandez did find a good stat I saw on Twitter. Uh, Stefanski was the OC of the Vikings last year, and they ran it at the third-highest rate. But Minnesota tight ends combined for the second-highest positional red zone target rate, 41.2%. And that, so that bodes fairly well for Hooper and to a certain degree. And David Njoku, it just, it just seems like Stefanski runs plays for tight ends around the goal line. So, uh, he could sort of, uh, salvage his, uh, you know, you know, maybe reduction in targets, uh, Hooper with some extra touchdowns. Um, that's a possibility, but I'm not drafting him where he was producing last year. I think he's just going to fade a little bit from that spot. Yeah, that does seem a little intuitive, right? If you want to run the ball a lot, you might be running more packages with tight ends in there to block, which opens up more play action opportunity for those players. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Let's move on to Pittsburgh next. Uh, Vance McDonald. We haven't talked much about the Steelers because they haven't done much in free agency on the offensive side of the ball, but they did add Eric Ebron at tight end. Why is that bad news for Vance McDonald? Well, I think he goes back to being, uh, you know, instead of being an 80, 90% snap guy, he's going to probably go back to a 40, 50% and situational, uh, tight end, uh, receiving only. And that's okay. I mean, he can have some good games that way, but really what you want as a fantasy owner is to have a guy that's out there on, you know, 90, 95% of the pass plays. Uh, so we'll see if that's Ebron's role or if they rotate it and they both are playing 70%, that's possible as well. Um, but Ebron, uh, you know, most touchdowns at his position over the last two seasons was 16. I think he now, you know, with Antonio Brown no longer a stealer, uh, he's probably going to be the primary red zone target for this team and Ben Roethlisberger heading into the season. So we'll see um, sort of how that shakes out. But, you know, you could see him getting 10 plus touchdowns next year without too much trouble. Um, he has had a trouble with, with drops over the years, but um, – uh, he's very athletic. I was kind of hoping the Packers might take a look at him because uh, he's still pretty young and athletic and can can run fast and really stretch the seam. And he's good around the red zone, uh, in the red zone and in the end zone. So uh, I think it's a good signing for, for the Steelers and probably a small upgrade for, for Roethlisberger as well. Are you worried at all about Darren Waller in Oakland? Do you think Jason Witten is a legitimate threat to Waller's snaps or targets? I don't know. He was so productive last year. Waller was. I, I know they love him. I think this is more um, – they. I like this more from a dynasty standpoint for Waller because I think he's going to get a chance now to learn from one of the greatest players ever to play the position. Uh, I think Witten is probably looking at 30, 40% snap share. Maybe he's replacing Foster Moreau in between the twenties. And then Moreau comes in, uh, in the two tight end sets in red zone. Cause he's pretty good in, in the end zone to do to his size, but uh, I don't see him as a big threat to Waller. I didn't move Waller down much once the Witten was signed. All right. So that does it for all the winners and losers. Losers of free agency, be sure to check out John's article over at 444.com, listeners. Uh, before we go, John, I want to check in with you on some of the players we haven't talked about, guys who are still out there, maybe not officially in free agency, but players that we know were available. And let's start with the quarterbacks, Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, Andy Dalton. What's your take on these three guys? There are a handful of QB needy teams out there. Some of them are going to address that issue in the draft, but we mentioned the Chargers. We mentioned a couple other teams. Uh, what do you expect from these quarterbacks and from the teams who potentially could be signing them? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still puzzled that Winston's out there. I know he threw all, you know threw a lot of interceptions uh, last year. Prior to that, he was a little bit interception heavy, but he wasn't quite to the level where he, you know he was throwing 30 in a season. Uh, so I think he has the capability of taking better care of the ball. Um, he had, I mean, obviously there's the story of his squinting constantly at the scoreboard because he can't see, but he got LASIK this off season. I, I don't think that's a non-factor in <laughs> terms of what, what his possible upside is as a 26 year old, uh, former first rounder. I, I'm surprised some of these teams are not pulling the trigger on him, but we don't know how much he's asking for, I guess, money wise. And, um, you know, we'll see where he lands. Cam Newton, I think it's just all injury question marks right now. If he ends up being fully healthy and is throwing the ball like he used to, then somebody's going to take a, you know, is going to give him a contract because he's extremely dangerous as a dual threat passer uh, runner. So that's very interesting. I think Dalton's dest destined for sort of a Tannehill role where he's going to go to, you know, a team that's sort of unsettled in a backup role, maybe eventually get a chance to start again. But it seems like the musical chairs are, uh, you know, the music's stopping and there aren't so many chairs in terms of the, the starters versus how many starter capable guys are out there because some of these like Teddy Bridgewater types ended up, you know, getting starting gigs. So um, I think that's where we sort of are with the quarterback position right now. 
The only other available player that really stands out to me is Robbie Anderson, the wide receiver formerly of the Jets, and it doesn't seem like he's getting much interest from the market of NFL teams either. What's your take on Anderson, and where would you be willing to speculatively draft him right now? Yeah, the interesting thing with Anderson is that we don't know how much he's asking for, although we heard, I guess, that he was asking for $15 million a year, and it's clear that the market is not going to support that. The other thing going on here is that the draft is extremely deep at receiver, so I think you end up seeing him getting signed after the draft if, if a team doesn't come away with a receiver that they like um, and still has cap room for, for Anderson, but his price is probably coming down pretty, quite a bit. And the other player I'd mention is Brashad Perryman, uh, who's actually very similar to Anderson in terms of his skill set, um, extremely fast, deep threat. But uh, you look at Perryman over the last four years, he said he's had uh, 16 games where he's seen at least five targets, and he's averaged 3.4 catches for 53 yards, 0.38 touchdowns per game. He actually performed well in sort of a wide receiver one role late last year for the Bucks, and uh, he's still pretty young and can fly. So, you know, I think those two players both – with similar skill sets. Maybe teams are not rushing out to sign either one of them because they, they're both out there and we have the draft coming up. So they're going to kind of wait and see what, what they get in the draft. And then they'll, the market for these guys will start to heat up. Great stuff, John. Uh, I think that's all I got. You got anything else to talk about before we shut things down here? No, this is good. This is a good, good discussion. All right. Well, thanks for uh, joining me. It was good to finally cross over uh, the, the pods here at TMAP. I had a lot of fun. Thanks again. Thank you. Listeners, if you want to follow John on Twitter, you can find him at 444 underscore John. You can find me on there at Greg Sauce. Be sure to head over to 444.com to check out John's fantasy free agency winners and losers article, as well as a bunch of other great fantasy impact stuff from Jen Akins, from TJ Hernandez, George Criticos. We've got you covered uh, through the entire free agency period. We're going to keep updating the site through our quarantine days. And uh, yeah, come check out the site. We've got a bunch of great stuff. I'll be back again next week to talk with... A defensive specialist. Uh, one of the things we might have thought that we overlooked on this episode were team defenses and specifically uh, maybe some individual defensive players. We're going to get to all that next week. We're going to look at the impact of free agency on the other side of the ball and how that affects the team defenses we'll be drafting in our best ball leagues, as well as some IDP talk, which is not really my wheelhouse. So I'll be bringing in an expert to help me with that. So until then, thank you as always for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. 